All right, best trip ever. We're going to talk about your best trip that you have uh, ever taken. That's the name of this message. Today, you know, Ephesians is really about a journey, even though it's very technical, very theological, and definitely today extremely theological. It's really about a journey that we take. So tell me, just shout it out, because we would all really like to know. Some of us haven't made plans, or we're already making plans for next year about where we're going to go. Like, what's the best place you've ever been? You know? So in the first service, just so you know, a lot of people said Greece. Maybe because it's inexpensive to go there right now. I don't, I don't know, you know. Whole thing is bad. But anyway, best trip ever, Hawaii, Greece, Ger- Ger- Germany, Bermuda. Oh, okay. Demofica. You are, you are so much more alive than the 930 service. I said this in the 930 service, and it was just total silence. I said, no, really, just tell me where, you, where you've been. Okay, so thank you very much. That's great. You're awake. You've had your coffee. God bless you. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, Israel, I've been to Israel. Man, what an adventure going to Israel is. If you love history, if you love the Bible, if you love biblical history, if you love adventure, there's so much adventure and so much beauty to see there. I've been there twice. I can't wait to go back for my third time. The church is going there uh, the end of February, this February 2016. Uh, Bermuda, somebody shouted out Bermuda. Who shouted out? Right here, Bermuda. So we went there on our honeymoon, and it was just great, you know, as they're all British over there. It's just an hour off the coast, if you're flying, not if you're swimming, off the coast of North, North Carolina. And it's over the pink houses, and you can't rent a car, you got to rent those little scooters. It just really a fabulous time in Bermuda. That was for our honeymoon. We, on our 25th wedding anniversary, we went to Italy. We stayed in this little town called Sorrento. Somebody yelled out the Amalfi Coast. It's right as you start the Amalfi Coast. How did they ever have the idea to build those houses into the side of that cliff on the Amalfi Coast? It just fabulous, fabulous. And where we stayed, Sorrento, was like stepping back. We stayed there three days. And uh, it overlooks the bay where the Apostle Paul, so let's get biblical for a second, the Apostle Paul landed on his way to Rome. We had an exceptional time. So uh, for our 30th anniversary, which is this August the 10th, and I know many of you, I'm going to say what you're thinking. I mean, just, I want to say what you're thinking. There's no way. What you're thinking right now is there's no way you're that old. <laughs> Krista and I were members of a cult when we were young, and uh, we were married at the age of five. So let's just get that out on, 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 on the table. Uh, so we went to Bermuda, the honeymoon, and we went to Italy for the 25th. We just made plans a few weeks ago, and I just thought about it a few days after we made it. We are going to Front Royal, Virginia. Yeah. Yes, thank you. For two days, Front Royal, Virginia, spending our 30th. I thought, my goodness, where is this marriage going, actually? Is, <laughs> we're going to be uh, touring the super Walmart that they just built out there. And uh, Sorry if you're from Front Royal, sorry. But uh, anyway, there, you'd have to admit there's a big difference between Bermuda, Italy, Front Royal, Virginia. Anyway, uh, that's what we're doing. I want to take you on a journey this morning. I'd like us to go back to Ephesus. I'd like us not just to think about the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but I'd like you to think for a moment about what's going on in Ephesus. And this is going to be very helpful because I'm trying to get you to a certain place because we're getting ready to get extremely theological. And that could be very boring. So help me for a second to get into the narrative which we read about in Acts 19, if we can, a little bit. So let me tell you a little bit about the city. It's a very large city. 
very prominently. There was as many as a half a million people, as many as a half a million people living in the city of Ephesus. Powerful city, the Roman uh, governor. I mean, that is where you know they were. That was where the seat of power was. All right. Um, the, the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven great wonders of the world in the ancient world. I have a picture. Look at this place. Okay, that was there. And they believe the image of Artemis fell from the sky. You read about it in Acts chapter 19, they say this. Fell from the sky, and of course that, it was like a big rock, and that was, that was in there. Now this incredible, like I said, one of the seven wonders of the world when that was built. Okay, ancient world. That was filled with priests thousands of priests. And because Artemis is a fertility goddess, right? What did that mean? That means that the priests were basically male and female prostitutes. And so what you had, you had thousands of these priests slash prostitutes, and you had dancers, and you had musicians, and you had bankers, and you had politicians, and you had performers. It was like New York City takes a trip to Vegas and stops at D.C. along the way to pick up a busload of people. And this, it, was, it was chaos. It was wild. It was all kinds of just incredible immorality that was going on. That was at that, this phenomenal temple that you see right there. Um, idol worship. So like I said, they, you know, they were worshiping this image that fell from the sky. Some people think it was like a crater or something, some kind of rock that fell, and they thought, oh, God has... Anyway, so they put it in there, and they're worshiping it, but idol worship, big time. Think about this. Again, in Acts chapter 19, the narrative portion of it, we're told that as a result, basically, what I'm suggesting to you this morning, as a result of the theology behind it, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the doctrine behind it, people brought out their sorcery scrolls. They did a lot of sorcery. Now, in modern day terms, Arlington County financial terms, okay, they brought out 50,000 drachma worth of these scrolls and they burned them. All right, let me give you what is 50,000 drachmas. That's about 20 million Arlington County dollars. Like these people are big time into sorcery, right? 20 million, and they burned all these scrolls. And you read about that in Acts chapter 19. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the, the, the church if I can for a second. So the Apostle Paul spent about two years there, established a church on his uh, third missionary uh, journey. And the, the disciple John, who wrote, you know, the beloved disciple, he's got a great name, John, who... Um, wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, right? Um, more than likely, he at one point was leading this church, living there. He probably wrote the Gospel of John there, probably wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John there, was arrested, exiled to the, the island of Patmos, right? So he's there. You think about this. I mean, and they planted churches all of this church. It's the first church. In the book of Revelation, there's seven churches listed. Ephesus is number one. And it's number one probably because it's the most prominent. It like helped to plant, start, pioneer all these other churches around the region. What I'm trying to say is a very, very powerful, prominent church. Now, some of you who are more familiar with the Bible, you think about Jesus hanging on the cross. What does he say to John about his mother, about Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary? He says, John... Right, it's your mother. Take care of her, in other words. And so we're told she came to live with him. So you go to Ephesus today, you'll see this structure here, and that is, we're thought, what some people believe, is where Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, lived while in Ephesus, while John was leading the church and, and doing his writing. And that's there, a modern-day picture. So I'm describing to you a very powerful, prominent city, a place where God was doing just absolutely amazing things. You'll read in Acts chapter 19. I want you to think about this for a second, everybody. 
Don't get, when I'm getting ready to say, I don't want you to get caught up in, oh my gosh, this sounds like a crazy televangelist story. I just want you to get caught up in this for a second. I want you to think about if you had a loved one, somebody who's very near and dear to you, and they were sick, and you wanted them to get well. What we're told is Paul would place his hands on handkerchiefs and aprons, and they would take those handkerchiefs and aprons and put them on people who were sick, and those people who are sick would get well. What I'm describing to you is not some kind of goofy thing that's going on. What I'm describing to you is powerful stuff. Like the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians that you're full of power. You're full of purpose. You're, you have all kinds of spiritual riches. I mean, there's great things. Matter of fact, God is going to do in your lives in this church in Ephesus way beyond what you can ask or imagine. You know what? I can imagine a lot. And so what I, what, what I want to suggest to you this morning is this. I want to go there. I mean, I don't want to go to Ephesus. I want to go to this place where people are experiencing a demonstration of the goodness of God. So some of you have Bibles like mine that when you read different passages, it like like these verses, and there'll be a header on it. So in mine, it goes, the heading is death to life, like spiritual death to spiritual life. Good stuff, powerful stuff, purpose, meaningful stuff, people being helped and healed and made whole. This, this more than anything else, is where I'd love to see our church go more than anything else. That's my, that's my desire. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, describe how we get there. Describe to us how we get there. So these 10 verses, the first three verses are like, where's the starting place? The last verses, 8, 9, and 10, are like, where's the destination place? And then the verses in between, how do we get there? How do we travel? So... That's how we're going to break it down. Now, let me say one other thing before I read this. And the reason why I have this stool behind me, because I'm going to sit down here in just a second, because I'm going to try to stay on track this morning. Look, uh, this is one of the deepest passages in all the Bible. It's doctrine and theology. And actually, doctrine and theology is extremely important to all of us, whether you know it or not. It's all about, our, it's all about your belief. You have a belief. I have a belief. Everybody has a belief. And it dictates the way you live and the way you see the world. Very important. But when you start talking about it, people's eyes glaze over. Okay? Like we lost three people in the first service. Okay? <laughs> well, what I'm trying to do right now is manage your expectations. All right? <laughs> uh, and so I, why, that's why I wanted to go through the narrative and let you know that there's narratives there. But what we're getting ready to do, line by line, word by word, in this passage is very deep. And I've just been churning away over it all this week thinking, oh my gosh, I can't explain this. This is the single most important thing about Christianity. People ask, what is Christianity? What is Jesus really all about? Well, whatever that answer is given, however you would answer that question, whatever way you've heard that question answered, I just want to tell you, biblically speaking, here's the answer that everybody should be given. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. All right. Now, the last thing I'll say, and we're going to pray. The Bible tells us that this most important thing, we cannot understand it without the power of the Spirit. Like, I give my best effort, which is not going to be very good, okay? I give my best effort, but unless the Holy Spirit shows up and, like, reveals it, we're going to walk out here and say, well, oh my gosh, what did I spend my morning just doing? I have no idea what, why that was worthwhile. So what we're going to do is we'll pray and ask, please, 
uh, Holy Spirit, come and help us to understand this single most important belief about who Jesus Christ is and what is Christianity. Will you pray with me? Um, Holy Spirit uh, said so very clearly in the Scriptures that we cannot understand this unless you are present and you give the understanding. So please come. Please, please be here and reveal it and help us to understand. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Here's what it says. It's on the screen behind me or in your Bible or in the back of your bulletin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, we don't start out in a wonderful way there, do we? Right? You're dead. The first thing we need to know is we're dead. It's talking about dead, talking about being spiritually dead. So we're spiritually dead. So, so you know, whoo, great. And your transgressions and your sins. Since we really get caught up on sins. I mean, we're like, oh, don't call me a sinner. Let me tell you what the word sin means here. It's an archery term. It means you didn't, you didn't hit the mark. You didn't hit the bullseye. So basically what it's saying is, is that if you think that you're even slightly less than perfect, that's what sin is. If you think you're perfect like God is perfect, you have no sin. But if you're anything less than God, well, that's sin. So I don't know how you feel about yourself, but uh, anyway. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We're going to come back to all this stuff. It's good. And the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We're going to come back to that word because it's very important here. Flesh. And following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that... In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is, this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I thought God just said it wasn't by works, and now we're told we're created to do good works. That seems very odd to me. Okay, it's not by works. By the way, you were created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a lot of confusion about Christianity, both inside and outside of the church. I had a professor in college, Bible college used to say, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And so here's, here's the issue. I'm going to tell you about something, talk to you about something. I've been to Bible college, I have a bachelor's degree in pastoral studies, and uh, I went through seminary, so I have a master's in divinity, and uh, I really didn't understand what Christianity is all about until about a decade ago. And you have to ask yourself, why? Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, also had been to a Bible college, very, very, very smart person, and he was describing to me a conversation that he was having with somebody trying to describe this person was like they had grown up in the Christian church and now they were going to some other religion and they were talking about it. And my friend, who really is a smart guy and really knows his Bible, says, well, hey, what, you know, all religions are basically telling us to do the same thing, and that is to be good. And that's what Christianity is doing. It's just telling you to be good. And I stood there for a minute because I was a little bit shocked and uh, mouth hanging open. And many, people, many, many, many people believe that. And here's the problem with that. Actually, Christianity is teaching the exact polar opposite. 
And so how can we even begin to understand what Christianity is? How can we even begin to get to the place of this demonstration of God's power as we see in Ephesus when everything hinged on this doctrine I'm talking about when it's the exact opposite of what we think it is? Can you see the confusion there? Anybody with me? Are you already asleep? Okay. So what I'm describing to you is, is how in the world can we begin to think about, oh God, we want this, what we see there, and when we're, we're confused about the single most important doctrine that we see in the Christian church. Here what we see is sin, and all those sin gets all the headlines. Oh my gosh, sin gets all the publicity, gets all the headlines, steals all the joy. What Ephesians 2 says to us is sins are not the problem. Sin is not the problem. Sin's not the problem. Are you serious? Yes, sin's not the problem. It, it, it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And what it's describing to us, the problem is, is our sin nature, this, this thing that's called here f- flesh. So I want to say something to you real quick, and I wanted to, then I want to go back and define it. So here we go. I'm going to say this a number of times this morning. All right, since we are not saved by our good works, we can't be lost by our bad works. There's Christianity. Since we are not saved by our good works, we can't be lost by our bad works. What does works mean? It means you're a good person. You're a good person. You do good things. You're a moral person. Uh, You even do your best, and you do a really good job, actually, of, um, of, of following the rules that you see in the Bible. Let me try to explain it this way. If I lined a group of people on this side of the stage, and I said, you've got to stand there, and the only way for you to accomplish what needs to be accomplished to be right with God right, to be right with God, is you've got to jump in the air and, and land over there without touching the stage or using any special app. You can't run and jump, can't do anything like that, okay? And so I lined up people over here. Maybe we have some, some older people, and they could jump like a foot. And then maybe have some other people who can jump 5 or 10 feet, I don't know. And then we have some superstar athletes that could jump 10, 15 feet, I don't know, whatever. But the point is, is that nobody can make it all the way across. Some of us are doing a better job than others, but all of us are equally falling short, right? Does that make sense? Well, there, there's where our sin nature, who we are, is we all fall short, right? We all fall short. And that's what's being described here by the sin nature. So we are not saved by our good works, and because of that, we can't be lost by our bad works. It's not about our behavior. The issue is not our sins. The issue is our sarks, S-A-R-X. You'll see a fill-in-the-blank there for you on the screen behind me or on the bulletin. It's super, super important. Um, it's where this word um, flesh so that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense to us today, flesh, flesh. How does that make sense? Well, when it says flesh, it means our sin nature. That's who we are, not what we do. And we all have a sarks, we all have a sin nature, and that sarks inside of us wants to rise up. So it says in verses 1, 2, and 3 here, it says, don't, don't follow the ways of the world. Well, what are the ways of the world, everybody? The ways of the world is in, in this world, you know this to be true. In this world, we go from dependence as a little baby on whoever's going to care for us or we're going to die. We're fully dependent as a child, and then we go to independence, correct? At least, right. You like it when the little baby is at home, but when that child is 25 or 30 years old, you're like, my gosh, get out of the house and live for yourself. Have some self-respect. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out of your grandmother's basement. Right? Right. So you go from dependence to independence. And the thing is, in God's world, in God's kingdom, you go the exact opposite. You start out fully independent and you go to full dependence upon God. I mean, they're just running in opposite. So that's the way of the world. And then he talks about the devil. 
So what is the, So what we're told in the scripture, the devil said is, I will lift myself up, I will become like God. And then he talks about, uh, he, he talks about this, about the flesh, the sarks. Think about what Adam and Eve did, that we will be like God, we want to be like God. It's the lifting the self up, it's the independence, not the dependence. I'm going to make myself right, I'm going to call, in other words, I'm going to make myself God because I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to figure it out myself. And this is what's being said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. So the human heart is curved in on itself. Our nature, our sarks, our, that we all have, our nature, is so deeply curved in on itself that it viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. So Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's a line in there that says nobody seeks God. I used to read that line and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, baby. What do you mean nobody seeks God? I see all kinds of people seeking God. And what, what's being said there is, is that we're not truly seeking God. We're using God because our sark says, I want to use God to get what I want. I want to use God. Self-centeredness. Sin nature is very self-centered. It seeks to use. Tim Keller has written, he's a pastor of a church in New York City. He's written a lot about this. Let me talk about self-centeredness for a second because a lot of times we think, oh, a self-centered person is a person doesn't care about anybody. They're doing their own thing, bad person, you know, wild person, whatever. They're messing everybody else's life up. This is what he says about self-centeredness. Listen, it's very important. More often, self-centeredness makes you incredibly moral. There's no better way to feel good about yourself than to be a good person. Self-centeredness drives most people into being incredibly good now, when you think about it that way, everybody, all of a sudden, all these stories from the life of Christ just begin to make sense. Like, bing, oh my gosh, now I get it. Why did Jesus have story after story like this? So, so people who were so incredibly good, rich young ruler, the story of Jesus, the rich young ruler, he's a very moral person, very good person, wonderful person, unresponsive to Jesus. The Pharisees, I know we beat the Pharisees up, but come on. Let's, I mean, come on. Maybe your relative was a Pharisee at some point, okay? So uh, these were very good. If anybody's going to heaven, these people did good things. They were upstanding citizens, everybody. You would look at them and say, if anybody's going to heaven, those people are going to heaven. They were very good people, unresponsive to Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus tells the famous story of the prodigal son, the elder brother, the elder brother who stayed home and did the right thing. The honorable thing, completely unresponsive to the grace of the Father. And then on the opposite side, you have the prodigal son, totally immoral, selfish, wicked. He's completely responsive to the grace. And then you think about all the other stories. Zacchaeus, immoral person, responsive to Jesus. Bam, like Jesus didn't have to say anything. Boom, he just responds. Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus walks up to him. He doesn't say, stop it. He's a thief. Matthew is a thief. He doesn't say, stop it. He says, follow me. Boom, he follows the woman at the well, immediately, responsive, follows. And then things begin to make sense. Everybody has a sarks. Uh, but in life, uh, Jesus, in Jesus' life, it was the most moral people that had the greatest difficulty responding to Jesus Christ. That's just a narrative truth as you read through the Gospels. It was the most moral people who had it. And now you've been to say, ha, 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 wait a minute. Now I'm starting to understand. It's that sarks in me that so desperately wants to justify itself to be good, Right? that then I will do everything I can to be a good person or serve other people or obey, whatever good means to you, right? 
And we so, we so desperately, you know, want that. I had a, um, excellent example. I'm churning away all week over this, trying to think, how in the world am I going to explain this? And I don't actually know if this is going to explain it, but it seems like for some reason, here's the problem with being a preacher, is that when I'm really having a hard time figuring something out, God actually does something to me. <laughs> and it's not good. So... You know, I, so I'll tell you the street I live on. We have a guy that lives on our street. He's, 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 he's a good guy, macho guy. You know what I'm saying? Macho military guy, hunter, you know, can do all kinds. I'm not a macho guy, and um, I don't hunt and all this stuff. Anyway, he, he got this beautiful Harley Davidson, right? Beautiful, like we're talking $20,000, $25,000 Harley Davidson. And he was so, he was so uh, afraid to, to ride it, he would not leave our little street. He would just ride up and down the street. And it took him months and months. Now, I am not macho, right? And I don't hunt, and I wasn't in the military. They probably would reject me. But I grew up on motorcycles. I grew up on motorcycles all my life. I grew up on motorcycles. So thinking, you know, <laughs> here he is. He's afraid to leave the street. And, uh, you know, it's no, it's no big deal to me. So uh, Super Dave sitting down over here uh, from time to time. You see the black chopper that's sitting out front. Choppers are very difficult to ride, and, and, and it's very loud. So Super would give me uh, uh, the, the chopper, which he calls Fuego, and uh, I ride it. And my neighbor, choppers are really hard to drive, okay? And he would look at me, oh, my, and he would just come down and shake his head because he's so afraid. He had so much respect for it. He said, this, I'm not even going to touch it. So uh, Dave last week gave me the chopper, and I drove it home, and I drove it back this morning. You know, on my way in here this morning, this thought crossed my mind as I'm driving. What if something happened? What, and I thought, well, no way. I can't, you know. I grew up on motorcycles, right? Well, I got to this turn right down over here. And when I turned, the back of the frame is very low. And it hit and it slid. Oh, my gosh. Da down the bike went. And the bike didn't get too injured, although he is going to kill me. He told me he would uh, he'd let me get through this sermon. And then he'd kill me. Uh, and I remember as it's, I was only going like seven, I was, it was the turn right there. It's the turn right here, this little turn to get into TJ. And Mary's going down and thinking, there's no way this is happening. I, I've lived my life on motorcycles. And it hit and it went down and I kind of threw my body under it to protect the bike, right? So <laughs> I got it up real, I got it up real quick and started and boom, pulled up. And when I got here, then I realized I had a rip in here, and I had a rip here. And you know what? I never buy new clothes, but I had recently bought these new pants. Second time I've worn, I ripped the pants. Brand new shirt. I mean, this couldn't be any worse. And coming in, I'm like, oh, gosh. And I'm in a hurry, and I come in here and do this. And we go out, and we do our prayer time at 9 o'clock. And then I'm, I'm the, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's my phone? I, yesterday, because um, we had to change plans, Again, never happens. I have a brand new iPhone. And I, oh no. So I go running, right? Running out in the street, and it's laying in the middle of the street. It's busted in a million pieces. Yeah, yes. All for your benefit. <laughs> okay, so I'm bleeding. The pants are ruined. The shirt's ruined. The phone is ruined. What's hurt? My pride. Yes, terribly. I'm like, 
you know, can, can we do anything just to, you know, pr- that's the really the thing that is hurt more than I just don't want anybody to know that I'm such a failure <laughs> that me, who grew up on motorcycles, put the bike down. They're sarks. Now, spiritually, the same thing happens. You think about it yourself, right? You don't think you're perfect, but come on. You still think, hmm, there's still goodness that's there. And that's how Sarks rages. Sarks fights against grace. Since we are not saved by good works, we cannot be lost by bad works. How is it that this, the vast majority of people misunderstand this singularly most important doctrine of Christianity? And the only way I can describe that I never understood this is that Sarks is so strong that we fight against it. So here's your second fill in the blank. Grace equals life. Now, I want to ask you, it's, um, it's summertime. Some people are still going away somewhere, and I want to talk to you about maybe you're taking a trip somewhere or you're going to do some. What are you afraid of when you travel to places? And I have some pictures, maybe some of these will register you. Is anybody afraid of that? Yeah. Is anybody headed to the Outer Banks? <laughs> anybody going to North Carolina? Anybody going to North Carolina? Okay, because they have an issue, just in case you did not know down Carolina. So some of us are really afraid of sharks. What's the second thing, uh, David? Okay, snakes. Yes, I have a friend that has snakes. I, the guy must be demon-possessed. Why would anybody own snakes? I saw a movie when I was a kid. It was like a horror movie about the bad guy owned a bunch of crocodiles in the basement of his house, and he would like feed all the people he was killing to the crocodiles. Freaked me out ever since. I do not like crocodiles. Great fear. What's the next one? Okay, now that's obvious. Yeah, terrible, wicked dogs. All right. What else you got for me, Dave? All right, that is a snail. That is a snail to be feared. Last, last one, a mosquito. A mosquito, the dreaded mosquito. Now, here's the numbers, you ready? So you got them all behind me. You know how many people that sharks killed in 2014? Three. Three worldwide that we know about were killed by sharks. But boy, they grab all the headlines, don't they? They grab all the headlines. Snakes. Snakes killed 94,000 people. Crocodiles killed a thousand people, and you dog lovers, 61,000 people, 61,000 people have been killed by dogs. It's not safe to have them in your home. (laughs) Snails, snails, do you want to take a guess? 200,000 people worldwide have been killed by snails. Mosquitoes. Who's afraid of mosquitoes? I'm afraid of sharks. Right? 755,000 people worldwide are killed by mosquitoes. What are you afraid of? Well, I can tell you what Sarks is afraid of. Sarks is afraid of grace. Because grace means I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I'd like to read to you something from Tim Keller. He does a much better job than I could ever do describing this whole thing, which is the primary belief of Christianity. The sinful nature that is within us wants us to be our own Savior and Lord. The Sark's heart functions under law. It gravitates. It loves law, 
right? It rejects the free gift of Christ's righteousness and salvation and continues to seek its own salvation. Therefore, the sin underneath all sins, the motive for our disobedience is always a lack of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. Okay, you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, I said it myself, that person's a good person. Like, that person's a really good person. I've heard a lot of people say, look, um, this person, they're not a Christian, but they're better than any Christian that I know. And if they're not going to heaven, nobody should go to heaven. Now, let's say this in a more crude fashion, can we? Right? They, this person, has earned their salvation. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, that's pretty safe to say. If you're saying, hey, this person, they're so good, they're not going to heaven, nobody should go to heaven, what you're simply saying is that person, who's speaking there? Sarks is speaking. Sarks is saying, they deserve it. They have earned it. And Sarks is primarily afraid of grace because grace says there's nothing we can do to earn it. We cannot save ourselves. Now, I want to take you in conclusion through the last couple of verses because 8, 9, and 10, because you know, if you're not stumped now, you're going to really be stumped. Look at what it says. Here we go, 8, 9, and 10. Notice, oh yeah, whatever. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice this. What does it say? Not by works. Say that. Not by works. And then here's where it gets weird. You ready? So that nobody can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? But you just told me it wasn't by works. You just told me it wasn't by works, which God prepared in advance. So prepared in advance to do. Not only is it not by works, but now you told me it is by works, and you've prepared in advance for all of this to be done. Our, what it's saying here is that our works mean nothing. And when our works mean nothing, then they mean absolutely everything. But once our works mean something, then they mean absolutely nothing. You got that, right? There you go. I've explained Christianity to you. Once your works mean nothing, all your good behavior, once they mean nothing, they mean everything. And the moment they mean something, they mean absolutely nothing. Boom, we're good. We're ready to roll. Works equal nothing, then works equal everything. Christianity isn't about being good. God would rather us be bad. Just joking. Uh, Christianity is pure grace, salvation, power. Right, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, grace, for I am not ashamed of the grace of God because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, you ever wondered why in the world Paul said, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it? Because a lot of people were running around saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. How could you say it? And who is speaking when they say you should be ashamed of yourself? <coughs> Who's speaking when they say to Paul, you should be ashamed of The Sarks is speaking because it goes against our Sarks, and we all have it, right? You know, I, 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 can you believe it? I've been preaching 25 years, and I've said all kinds of goofy and ridiculous things because I'm imperfect as can be. But let me tell you, when people have really come after me, do you know who it's been? It's been when I've preached about the one thing that Christianity hinges on, the whole foundation, when I've preached about grace, and who comes after me? A non-church person or a church person? Exactly. And why does that happen? Because Sark screams out and says, no, I hate grace. I must have self-salvation, right? It's pure grace. Sark is ashamed of that. Think about uh, the wonderful story, Les Mis. Any Les Mis fans here? Anybody, Les Mis? Uh, powerful. You know the story is all about law and grace. And Victor Hugo, when he wrote it, 
when he wrote the story, his son said, don't dare make the bishop, the church guy, don't make him the person who has grace because the church doesn't have any, the Christian church has no grace. And Hugo said, nope, I'm writing it the way I'm writing it. So he wrote that way. And he made the church guy the person who had grace. And so he meets this guy who just gets out of prison. His name is Valjean, right? And Valjean takes advantage of the bishop to his hospitality, hits the bishop over the head, steals some expensive things from his house, goes down the road. The police catch him with these expensive things. They bring him back to the bishop's house. And what's going to happen? The law comes down. And the bishop says, Oh, my son, you forgot the candlesticks. You forgot something that's even more. And here's the thing. Valjean is so blown away by the extravagant grace, the power of grace, that his life has changed. And our fear is, is that we tell people about the extravagant grace of God, they'll go and live any way they want to. And the point is, is that if you really understand the power of God's grace, you'll no longer be able to live any way you want to because the Holy Spirit gets in your life and that's like a power like nobody has ever experienced before. So as you read through the narrative in Acts chapter 19, what you see is, is and I showed you that temple, right? The temple of Artemis and all kinds of immoral things going there. What you don't find is you don't find Paul on the steps of that temple saying, how dare you do these immoral things? He doesn't do it. Why doesn't he do it? My Sarks is crying out for him to do it. Why wouldn't you do it? He doesn't do it. Instead, what he does is he preaches grace into his own Admission. He says his greatest battle was against the people who are morally upright, not against the people who are living wicked moral lives, because when we understand the grace of God, it is so powerful, so incredibly powerful, that we can't help but be changed like Valjean. That's it. And if we want to experience the power of God coming down that we read about in the Scriptures, the only way to get there. It's the only way to get there. It's the only way to get there. And the journey that I hope to take this church on is that journey. Because that's the greatest journey of all. It's absolutely wonderful. I told you about the sorcery scrolls, the $20 million worth of sorcery scrolls. The city clerk in Acts chapter 19 gathers, he's got all, they're having a big riot, gathers people together, people are all upset. And he says, look, Paul and his posse, so to speak, never blasphemed our gods. Wait a minute. He should have been blaspheming the gods all over the place for what they were doing because it's completely wrong. And he doesn't do it. Paul did not spend his time preaching against sins. He preached about the one thing we all need that brings the power of God, and that is our sin nature. And that is our need for God's grace. Sarks is the issue. Listen to a Keller quote. This is what Keller says. I'm almost done. Only five people have gone to sleep while I've done this. That's awesome. Keller says this. In normal religions, the motivation for morality is fear-based. In gospel Christianity, the motivation is a dynamic love. Now, can we talk about Jesus Christ being the only way for a second? People are upset. Anybody know anybody upset about that one? Anybody? Anybody? No, anybody. You don't? I have a lot of people I want to introduce you to. As a matter of fact, I know a bunch of you are very upset about this claim that Jesus Christ is the only way. Can I just take a moment to unpack this real quick, all right? Um, I want you to imagine that you're down on the National Mall, and it's a very hot day. It's 100 degrees, and it's humidity, and it's noontime, and you're incredibly thirsty, and you want water. You want water. And you're out there on the mall, and there's only one vendor, and he's got water. He's got a big sign, only water on the mall, and he's actually giving it away. Do you walk up to that vendor and say, how dare you? How dare you claim to be the only vendor on the mall that's giving away water? And the vendor says, well, 
I'm not being mean, just nobody else has the water. Does that make sense? I mean, who, none of us would walk up to that vendor and get mad at the vendor because he, he has the water. All the others chose not to give the water away. Now, would you please track with me for a second, please? Because our, you know, I've already had a conversation with someone this morning, did not get this point, and upset. This is a very upsetting point. Look, every religion on the, on the planet that I know of Every single one. This is not a boastful statement. It's not an arrogant statement. It's not, we're better than you. No, no, no. It's none of that. Every religion on the planet has an opportunity for their God to say, I love you so much, I will come down and give my life for you, and I'll save you by grace. See, almost all religions have a component of grace to it, but in Christianity, it's everything. You understand? Do you understand the difference? They all have a component of grace. But in Christianity, there is nothing else but grace. That's all there is. You can't work yourself into it. So it's not a nasty statement. It's not a mean statement. It just so happens that Christianity, the table of grace, Jesus is the only one that decided to come to that table. Does that make sense? He, He's the only one at the grace table. He's the only God that I know of. It's not mean. I'm not being mean. He's the only God that I know of that said, I love you so much, I'll die for you, and you don't have to earn it. Okay, there's all kinds of wonderful religion and all kinds of wonderful people in the world, and I am not about ready to say that there's things that are wrong with other religions. That's not the point. The point is... Jesus is the only one that based his belief system on grace. There's no one else sitting at the table. Why would we get mad? So, that's the deal with Jesus Christ and Christianity. All right, John Stott says this about salvation. He says, sin is me putting myself in God's place, and salvation is God putting himself in my place. Okay? Jesus is the only person I know that's done this. I haven't heard it from anywhere else, and that's all it means. When Jesus says, I'm the only way, what he's saying is, is I'm the only one out there that is offering salvation, justification by grace and grace alone. That's all he's, that's all he's simply saying here. One last thing, let's talk about boasting. Here's where I spend all my time dealing with people about Christianity. And here's what's ticking some of you off right now. I can guarantee you. Because I already talked to somebody after this morning and they were ticked off. Here's what's ticking you off. We can't get past people's attitudes. So here he says in the end, he said, you should not boast. That's what Paul says. You should not boast. Sarks wants to boast. This word is a military word. And what you would do is the night before a big battle, everybody's scared. Everybody's scared. And so you'd say, our way is better than your way. Our swords are better. Our cause is better. Our generals are better. You're going to die, baby. You're going to die. They would boast. They would get themselves whipped up in a lather. And, and they'd be boast. We're way, and they would go back and forth, right? The boasting. It's about an attitude. And so there's this attitude that is all wrong. And where I spend all my time talking to people is not really over the beliefs of Christianity, not over the doctrine of Christianity. We can't even get to that. We spend all of our time talking about somebody who has a terrible attitude who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. I spend all my time with that. Most people are like, oh, yeah, okay. I'm good with it. But they can't get past the attitude. You understand what I'm saying? The, the attitude of somebody is so incredibly bad that we spend all our time dealing with it. Yet, Sarks will change our attitude. 
Philippians 2, 5 says we should have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Same attitude. Sark's, the grace of God changes that Sark's attitude. Now, let me end with this. Harvard, a number of years ago, asked somebody to come and speak at their commencement to their graduates. And right before this speaker got up to speak, uh, a student got up. It was kind of a raucous environment, and the student was like making light of the fact that we know all about sex, we're having sex, and all this kind of stuff like this. Good. And then here comes the speaker, and the speaker takes on a completely different tone. And the speaker says, stay virgins to Harvard graduates. Stay virgins. And by the way, you're very smart, which means you're probably going to be very selfish. Don't be selfish. And to cap it off, the speaker says, abortion is the greatest evil. Now, you've got to wonder at this point, somebody's probably thinking, who in the world picked this graduation speaker? I mean, what were we, who was the wise person that picked this speaker? Because you understand what the graduates are thinking out there, right? They're just going nuts. And so after this speaker just, you know, kind of really lays them out, what did, they, what did the students do? They stood up and gave the speaker a standing ovation. Why? This is who gave the talk. There's great confusion about Christianity, everybody. And it starts within the walls of Christianity, not on the outside. We have to allow the grace of God to change our sarks because we're miscommunicating what Jesus Christ is all about. And everybody looks at her and says, oh my gosh. People were interviewed after that, students, and they said, you know, what do you think about what she said? Well, I don't really like what she said, but I love her. <laughs> I love her. She's given her life. She exudes love. Right? Could you do that? The grace of God is so powerful. So powerful. That it changes our heart. It changes our attitude. And what we're told in Scripture is that it can bring us to a place where the power of God comes down. And I can guarantee you this, every single one of us in this room wants to experience that, and we can't get there any other way. Well, that's it for that. Uh, let's have the, the uh, two guys who are playing the guitars come up here, and, uh, and we're going to have communion, and, and, and we're going to go, okay? So this is a great day to have communion, because communion is all about Jesus Christ has given his life for me. That's what the whole story is. Jesus. And what you're going to see is we have a number of people, and they're going to come to five different places in the room, here and back there and there and there and there. Communion is open to everybody here. We just ask that as you take communion, you'll come up, and you'll see that there's a plate, and in the middle of it there's some bread. You'll take the piece of bread, and you'll take the cup, and you can either eat and drink on your way back to your seat, or you can go back to your seat for a few moments. And you can say, Holy Spirit, I really didn't understand a thing that he was talking about this morning. Can you reveal the truth of it to me? Christianity is about nothing else but Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's about nothing. There's, no, there's nothing else. Since we can't be saved by our good works, we cannot be lost by our bad works. And there is Christianity in a nutshell for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, uh, for your word, though very difficult to understand. God, I just ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, and that you would help us to understand what grace really is. The depths of your grace, may you peel back the confusion.
that rests in our mind. And may we understand fully, be gripped by your grace and experience the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.